0: Welcome to Venture in the South, a podcast devoted to startup investing in the southern United States. Our hosts have invested in over 100 startups over the last decade, and we're excited to take you along on our journey exploring the startup world in the South. Welcome to Venture in the South. I'm David, and I'm doing a special episode today on the Silicon Valley bank failure and how it relates to Venture in the South. Let me start out with reviewing a couple of key facts that are publicly available that are true and put some color into what's going on if you don't know already. First of all, Silicon Valley Bank is distinct from the Silicon Valley Bank Financial Group. So the financial group is the holding company, and that's the stock that's traded on the public equity markets. They hold 100% Silicon Valley Bank. So they were founded in 1983 as a wholly owned subsidiary of Silicon Valley Bank Shares that's now known as the SVB Financial Group. And Silicon Valley Bank has specialized in banking for tech startups. That makes them really unique. They provided financing for almost half of U.S. venture-backed technology and healthcare companies in the last few years. While less well-known outside of Silicon Valley, SVB is the 16th largest bank in the United States and organized as a subsidiary of SVB Financial Group. Now, SVB has grown to have about 20 offices across 15 states in the United States and an international presence in the UK, China, Ireland, Germany, India, Canada, and Denmark. Greg Becker is the CEO, and he started serving in that role in 2011, so he has a decade of experience there. And one final note on who they are, they claim about a 50% market share of all venture capital bank tech and life science companies in the U.S. and a 55% share of U.S. venture capital backed companies that have had an IPO. And that's based on PitchBook and the National Venture Capital Association. So let me just review briefly SVB's business model so listeners understand how they make money. In a nutshell, it is the classic bank strategy of borrowing short and lending long, profiting off the interest rate spread. So in that scenario, the primary risk is maturity mismatch when there's liquidity demand. Now, there's a couple of things about SVB that are unique that distinguish them from other banks, and that affects their risk in a very big way. But let me just go through a little bit about how the money flows. So SVB's primary strategy was collecting deposits from startups that were funded by venture capital. So the typical scenario being a startup has a raise of, say, $10 million, they put $9 million into SVB, and they maybe have a $1 million at another account, and then they draw on that money as they need it. And typically, SVB requires them, as terms of their deposit, to participate in other services exclusively through SVB. Now, over the years, SVB has expanded into banking and financing for venture capital firms in addition to their startups, and they've added services aimed at allowing SVB clients to get all their services at SVB as they mature from a startup to a mature company. As of December 31st of 22, on a consolidated basis, SVB had total assets of two hundred eleven point eight billion with total investment securities of 120.1 billion, total loans amortized at 74.3 billion, and total deposits of 173.1 billion and when you sort that all out it ends up being 16 billion left in stockholders' equity. Their total revenue is comprised of really two revenue streams. One is net interest income and the other is non-interest income, which is basically fees. The net interest income on a fully taxable equivalent basis at the end of last year was $4.5 billion, and the non-interest income was $1.7 billion. Now, the net interest income accounts for the major portion of their earnings, and it consists primarily of income generated from the interest rate spread, which is the difference between the interest rate received on interest bearing assets and such as loans extended to clients and securities held in a fixed income securities portfolio. And then the interest rate paid by the bank on interest bearing liabilities, such as deposits and borrowing. So that spread is what what their income is to a large degree. Now deposits are largely obtained from commercial clients within the technology, life science, healthcare, and private equity slash venture equity sectors. But there was also some deposits from private clients, which included premium wine industry, commercial clients. And then there was venture debt, which was somewhere in the range of 10 or 20% of their debt lending. And of note, that was sweetened by warrants. So they had a deal with borrowers that they would lend them venture debt at a fairly high rate because it's very high risk. And they would get warrants to buy equity in that startup at a later date based on how much was lent out. And retrospectively, like in 2022, they didn't really make any money on lending venture debt, but they made about 20% annualized return on the warrants that they had previously received. Now, the thing that led to the current crisis was essentially their net income increased 41%, but that was primarily due to acquisitions as opposed to organic growth. The non-interest income dropped 37% last year, largely because of a $285 million loss on investment securities compared with a gain of $761 million in 2021. So in 2022, they had flat new deposits and they had a loss of interest income. In addition to those two things, the provision for credit losses tripled in 2022 to $420 million. Not a huge number, relatively speaking, but it did triple further eroding their margin. So, so think of this as a tank of water that you want to have available as needed. So the deposits is pouring water into the tank, and the investment returns is pouring water into the tank. And then redemptions or losses are taking water out of the tank. And so in 2022, you saw for the first time that the level of the tank was going down. Altogether, earnings declined 19% in 2022 year over year. Their capital adequacy softened in 2022, but remained decent with the common equity tier one ratio held even with the prior year reading at 12.09%. So that's one of the main factors the FDIC looks at in terms of assessing banks on an ongoing basis. And the efficiency ratio increased from 60%, and change to 65, almost 66. And the efficiency ratio is better if it's lower. So it was getting worse. Now, this is the acute event that happened. So in the middle of a week prior to their failure, Moody's contacted SVB Financial and informed them that they were expecting to downgrade SVB. And this was reported by CNBC. So that immediately precipitated activity there at Silicon Valley Bank. And they began working on a plan to raise capital by liquidating liquid assets and selling new shares. And so they've contacted a number of sources for funding, including Goldman Sachs Group. And then they worked on a plan to boost the value of the holdings, and at that time, it was a plan to sell about $20 billion worth of low-yielding bonds and reinvest in higher-yielding bonds, take the loss, and then they would fill that additional funding hole by selling shares, something in the range of 2 or $3 billion of shares, all to avoid a multi-notch downgrade. Well, the CEO, Becker, flew to New York on Monday to meet with Moody's and other ratings firms, and also most likely with some of these banks, But at that point, the news came out about the share sale, spooked clients, which are primarily tech startups, and that precipitated a rush to withdraw deposits. And that put the kibosh on the deal that he was negotiating in New York. So by Wednesday, there was a flat out run on the bank and multiple venture capital firms were advising their their client startups to withdraw funds. Finally, on Friday, March 10th, Moody's downgraded uh, the rating of SVP Financial and SVB Bank to basically junk grade. And they stated the key drivers of SVB's downgrade was significant interest rate and asset liability management risks, as well as weak governance. Remember, this downgrade was Friday morning just before California regulators closed the bank and then turned it over to the FDIC in receivership. So a little bit late to the game on the ratings downgrade. In terms of the revenue, SVB gets revenue from net interest income, and that's three components, deposits from startups funded by venture capital, deposits from venture capitals themselves, and deposits from individuals, often related to the depositors and borrowers. So founders and co-founders and key employees and venture capitalists personally, this sort of thing. Second revenue source is non-interest incomes. I mentioned fees. A third revenue source is venture investments. So they get these warrants, but they also have an investment arm where they directly invest in some of these startups. And so they potentially get some returns from that when there's a liquidity event. And then they have the, the warrants from venture debt. So their obligations were primarily to their depositors. And their depositors were fairly large accounts. Venture in the South is brought to you in part by the Rolling South Fund, a family of funds providing single company SPVs, a quarterly rolling fund, and soon a traditional fund of approximately 20 startups launching in 2023. Our funds are focused on high value, high growth startups in the Southern United States with tax advantaged exits. For more information or to invest, go to rollingsouth.vc. So how did we get here? Well, first off, SVB was not a typical bank. In fact, it was the antithesis of a typical bank. Its depositor base was concentrated in a single market segment, which is venture, venture capital. A second atypicality was a large average account balance, which reportedly represented 93% of accounts exceeding FDIC insurance maximums. And the average balance was $3.5 million. Now, this is in comparison to the average US bank, which has about a 50 50 breakdown of accounts that are within the FDIC max and that are over the max. So, in addition to the concentration, this unbalanced account sources dramatically increase the risk of a bank run or so called sequential service, which is a runaway reaction, kind of like an uncontrolled nuclear fission reaction, where a critical mass of customers loses confidence in the bank's ability to settle accounts. And they ask for their money back at the same time, and the bank can't provide it because it's more liquidity than they have. And then a third risk was the correlating economic risks. The venture risks across all their customers were very similar. So regulators didn't really recognize this risk. So there was the correlating risk, there was the large account risk, and then there was the concentration in a single market risk. Now, there was a second big problem and that's the net stable fund ratio. So this is a ratio of assets to liabilities adjusted for liquidity risk. But currently it's only applied to banks with greater than 250 billion of average total consolidated assets. And this comes from the Dodd-Frank bank regulations from the financial crisis. Now one thing that's worth noting that up until 2018 the threshold was 50 billion. But in 2018 the regulation was modified by Congress to increase the threshold up to $250 billion and also allows the Federal Reserve discretion in determining whether a financial institution with assets equal or greater than $100 billion should still be subject to those standards. Now, in their wisdom, they didn't make that ruling for Silicon Valley Bank. So they were exempted from this rule. And this is really important to understand because... That exemption allowed them to have a ratio far below 100%. And so this net stable fund ratio is a ratio of assets that are weighted by liquidity to their debt obligations. Now, if you look at what's rated for liquidity, things that are liquid like a treasury note or cash liquidated in a day, that gets 100% weighting. But if it's an instrument that requires a week or maybe 10 days to liquidate that gets a rating of 50% in terms of weighting and then if it's like a treasury bond or a mortgage backed security that has a maturity of greater than a year that gets a weighting of 0 so you can see where this ratio is heavily weighted towards very liquid assets and if you don't have enough liquid assets to cover your debt obligations you go below 100 and that's a warning sign well Silicon Valley Bank was way below 100 because most of their assets were long-dated. And so they were at very high risk of a a run on the bank because of this liquidity problem that the regulators didn't really recognize. So mark that as a boo-boo for the Federal Reserve and Congress. A third issue was the so-called hold-to-maturity investments. Now, these are defined as investments that have a maturity of greater than a year. And on the balance sheet, they're accounted by the amortized cost method, which means they're listed on the balance sheet at their acquisition price, not at their market value. And this may make sense for non-banks, but not so much for banks. And for SVB, this meant that their hold to maturity investments were, were far less than listed on their balance sheet. And so they had far less liquidity than they had obligations in terms of short-term obligations. So this probably goes down as accounting standards faux pas. And then finally, as account holders became aware of these issues, they rushed to withdraw, causing the classic bank run, and rapidly depleted SVB's short-term liquidity, leaving only the devalued hold-to-maturity assets which couldn't be liquidated fast enough, and so they couldn't fund redemptions, and California closed the bank on Friday morning. The FDIC took over and created a new entity called the Deposit Insurance National Bank of Santa Clara that holds all the assets of SVB. Now, how might this affect startups in the South? Because that's what this show's about. Undoubtedly, some startups and venture capital firms in the southern United States have accounts at SVB, However, mostly bank regionally, so it's going to be a minimal effect in the southern United States. And other regional ecosystems, excluding the West Coast, will likely be minimally affected as well. Now, clearly, this is a significant blow to the startup economy across the U.S. and will further drain capital from the ecosystem in an already stressed ecosystem due to the recession that we're entering, but it's likely to be temporary and measured in low single-digit quarters, so maybe two, four, five quarters before we see a turnaround in terms of funding. And the most likely outcome of this ugly scenario is a sale of SVB to a large bank, meaning a bank with more than $250 billion in assets, such as JPMorgan Chase or Goldman Sachs. Although it's possible they could be bought by a large hedge fund or a private equity fund and maybe Elon Musk. So it's hard to know, but that seems like the most likely because of precedent. So the precedent is WAMU, which was Washington Mutual. They folded under the pressure of undocumented mortgage loans prior to the financial crisis. And they were taken over by the FDIC, but sold and no account holder lost money. Even the uninsured account holders didn't lose money, and that was a much bigger failure. Now, this is the second largest failure, so it's still a big failure, but it seems likely that the FDIC will find a buyer or will auction it off in large chunks, and on the news feed today on Sunday afternoon, they appear to be actively doing that, and so we may have word Monday morning on that. The best case scenario would be a whole package sale that would solve the most problems and nip the risk of contagion in the bud because there's other banks that are involved in venture that are at risk and have been experiencing withdrawal pressure. It's unclear how much risk they have because of these other issues that have been missed or not really addressed that I mentioned in terms of market concentration, large account balances that are not insured, correlating economic risk, the net stable fund ratio and the whole to maturity problem. It's unclear how these other banks are going to fare with those risk factors. So what can we learn from this? Well, I would say, really, there's one big take-home message, and that's diversity is king in venture. That's diverse funding sources and intermediaries, and that's what the Silicon Valley Bank was, an intermediary. Diverse startup geographies, meaning X, the West Coast, probably makes sense to deal with financial institutions beyond one geographic area. Third is more professional treasury management for startups. You know, it can't be too critical of CFOs because they can't see everything speeding down the road at them head on. But going forward, clearly CFOs need to look at the risk of their funds in treasury management and maybe do more direct investing in treasury notes and such rather than trusting an intermediary. Or distributing their funds among multiple intermediaries or banks. And then finally, in general, venture, both the capitalist as well as the startup founders, need to respect capital. Because if you don't respect capital, it's not gonna respect you and, and you have blow ups like this. Capital belongs to people, it's not play money. And these sources need to take this a little more seriously. Well, what can we change going forward? First of all, Closer scrutiny of the sub-250 billion asset banks. And three things that regulators probably need to pay more attention to. One is the source of funds diversity. A second is the NSFR or the net stable fund ratio. That probably needs to have a lower threshold, particularly in the context of mismatched deposits. And then a a third thing is hold to maturity treatment in accounting. As I mentioned for banks this maybe doesn't work and so maybe the whole to maturity accounting should be marked to market rather than uh, amortized at their purchase price uh, in order to get a, a more realistic balance sheet for transparency to not only investors but also customers a second big thing that we could change is having board of directors do more diligence on treasury management for their startups too many boards are just watching. They're not really proactive in terms of making sure certain critical things are taken care of. And so going forward, boards of directors need to do more diligence on treasury management. And then finally, in the venture world, we all need to realize that the go-go 2010s are over and it's a new era. Silicon Valley is no longer a monopoly for talent, ideas, or capital. Deals outside the valley are potentially more rational, sustainable, and economically viable. And so capital will flow outside the valley more now than it has in the past. And those entrepreneurial ecosystems outside the valley need to step up. On a final and encouraging note, the heads of the Federal Reserve, Treasury Department, and the FDIC announced on Sunday evening, March 12th, that the federal government will fully guarantee all Silicon Valley bank account holders deposits and make money available to all account holders on Monday. Furthermore, they'll offer funding to banks through a facility to help ensure banks can meet all depositor withdrawals. And the Fed's financing will be made available through the creation of a new bank term funding program. I believe that was the right thing to do, and I'm encouraged by that. Thanks for listening. We're interested in feedback and suggestions, so email your thoughts to David at This podcast is supported by Venture Carolina, a nonprofit focused on investor education, and the Rolling South Fund, a startup fund focused on early stage startups in the Southern United States.